Welcome to the New England Football Show. I'm your host, John Serenitas, and as always, I'm joined by my partners, Kevin Stone and Adam Kirchin, and tonight we have the good fortune to be joined by Andrew Callahan, Patriots beat writer from the Boston Herald. Andrew, how are you this evening? I'm doing very well. One of the best Mondays that I've had in a while, just getting the chance to join you guys, talk some Patriots, talk some draft, maybe some UConn if, uh, if we get lucky here. Absolutely, man. We'd love to talk UConn with you, and we are going to do that at the end of the show. But before we get started here, I do want to remind you guys out there that if you are looking to sell your current home or you are a first-time home buyer and want to get pre-approved for a mortgage, give our good friend Herb Devine a call at 781-254-2846. Or you can visit him at situate.mortgageright.com. He and his team are available anytime, including nights and weekends, to help you with any of your mortgage needs. Well, Andrew, of course, the news of the day is that the New York Jets and the Green Bay Packers finally finalize a trade for quarterback Aaron Rodgers and and just some initial thoughts there. I know that we've spent the past eight weeks or so talking about who has leverage, who doesn't have leverage. Will this get done? Won't it get done? It finally gets done. Just some thoughts on the trade and Rodgers now residing in the AFC East. Yeah, honestly, uh, selfishly, I'm, I'm glad it's over. You know, I, I was done waiting. They were the only suitor. Speaking of the Jets, the Packers clearly wanted to move on. So the debates over leverage, whatever side you fell on, it wasn't, you know, blowing out of the water one way or another. And lo and behold, I think the Packers got a good haul for a 39-year-old quarterback that speaking with some people, you know, around the team when this first came up, you know, the team being the Patriots, they're not all that afraid of Rodgers as much as Bill glows about him. So in the division, I think the Jets obviously are better. Does this make them favorites? No, I don't think so. But from the Patriots' standpoint, they're betting on themselves and their ability to at least limit Rodgers, except for those a couple occasional, you know, spectacular throws and to win out over time against them. But Pat Jets just got a lot more fun. Yeah, I was curious when uh, the Jets make them. I just, I'm just skeptical of the Jets. You know, I feel like I hate to do this because I try not to go just by brand and look at the players and the roster. It's a decent roster, you know, like they're, they should be a good team. But I just end up sort of saying, well, it's the Jets. How much of you is sort of, you know, couching this because the Jets have just flailed for so long? Yeah, I, I try to divorce myself of that too, right? But sometimes that's just baked into the experience. I mean, ask the Chargers, like how much were we glowing about their roster heading into last season? They go to Jacksonville, they're favored, they should win, blah, blah, blah you know, historic collapse there in the playoffs. The Chargers are very different from the Jets. But I would say when you look at their recent matchups with the Patriots, the only differences there was the quarterback play. And it wasn't just that, you know, Mac Jones was blowing Zach Wilson out of the water because he wasn't. He just wasn't making the horrific mistakes that Zach Wilson wasn't. And then when Zach Wilson at least holds on to the ball in that second matchup, it takes a punt return touchdown for the Patriots to walk off with a win. Aaron Rodgers not only owned one of the lowest interception rates for his career in NFL history, maybe the lowest, but he's going to make the throws that Mac Jones is going to have to match. So I think the coaching is less of an issue in terms of creating their own problems with the Jets have a history to do. Quarterback was a big issue, but I still take the Patriots coaching staff now, Bill O'Brien over the Jets probably. But when you talk to talent there, I think it's pretty clear the Jets have a more talented roster right now than the Patriots. Andrew, do you actually think that Aaron Rodgers will be bought in for the full season? Because I have my doubts. Now that he has his money, maybe this year, but at least – you know, let's call it two years from now. I don't know if he's there. So um, how big of a risk is this for them? Yeah, they're all in, right? You know, and it's not only just the money with him, but you have the money coming up with other players. Like your margin of error here is closed, but they think they're ready. They're good to go. That goes to the head coach who's going to be at least, let's call it a warm seat 
GM Joe Douglas, who's on his second head coach. So they're all in. They need to make this work. For Rodgers, I think he's got enough of that kind of – and we saw a little bit with Brady, right? Jimmy G gets here in 2014, reignites his – you know, well, let's not say career, but he gets a kind of energy or force about him that you don't – an urgency unless you have some sort of outside pressure. Rodgers had that before he won his last couple MVPs. He drafted Jordan Love. So he rides that FU energy, if you will, all the way to two MVPs. Now I think he has a little bit of that in New York. Yes, he goes in that retreat thinks he might retire, comes back. I don't want to speculate on anything that doesn't really make a lot of sense, which is basically the Aaron Rodgers experience. But what we do know is he wanted to go to this new team. This team is well-positioned, better positioned than the Packers. He needs to make it work. So do they. So I think it might not be a honeymoon, and this is an all-positive sense, but they'll make it work for at least a year and be happy together for it. Yeah, and especially because I think when you look at the Jets, they're in a situation where they need to not only make the playoffs – but they need to grab some of the headlines in the back page in New York. It matters there. It may not matter in a market like Green Bay because you're the only show in town, but in New York where you're competing against other pro sports teams, the Giants, you're competing against other things in general, you need to be relevant. And I think if nothing else, Aaron Rodgers makes the New York Jets relevant. But I agree with you, Andrew. I don't think that I don't think that they're the favorite in the division. I still think the division ultimately goes through Buffalo, and I think Miami is better than them, especially if Tua can stay healthy. But this now begs the question, are the Patriots firmly entrenched as the fourth team in this division, which if you go back four years ago, that would have been hard to fathom, but it is the reality now. Are the Patriots the fourth best team in this division? Have the Jets with this move leapfrogged them in your opinion? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I don't I don't think it's by some sort of massive margin or something the Patriots can't make up. And ultimately, you know, the division might be decided by injury. And I'm not saying, you know, Buffalo gets, you know, an avalanche of injuries and the Patriots spring up all the way to first. We look at third versus fourth, really tight competitive division. You know, the biggest injury domino to fall would be Tua. Then Miami could finish in last. And no one's going to be surprised. So how does that affect the Patriots? What does their injury situation look like? You get a full season of Mac Jones. Who knows about, you know, some of the skill position player drop-ins alignment on the Jets. And again, that's all speculation. But as of now, with their current roster before we get to the draft, yeah, it's, it's hard to make a case for the 2023 Jets not being better than the 2023 Patriots, all that history aside, because the most part, they fixed what had dogged them before. Now they just fixed that last issue against the Patriots and, and look ready to take off. I feel like, you know, the division has really changed. Because for a long time, it was Patriots and three teams that probably aren't going to make the playoffs, maybe one other one. And now you can look at each team. Some of them may be at 9-8 and eight or like that. But you're looking at four teams that could make the playoffs. I mean, at this point, not, not, not this year, but, you know, they could make it if they, you know, if they have it right. So um, is, this a, is this a division that, you know, Patriots fans aren't going to recognize? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, the last couple of years, like Buffalo being at the top, that's kind of normalized, right? The Jets, you know, nipping at your heels. They experienced that last year. Miami, you know, has been in the pain in their butt the last, you know, however many years, if you even want to go back to the Brady era. But I think for the most part, you know, the Patriots are more concerned about where they are. Like, they, there's no Sunday that's a given. We were even circling certain Sundays last year and be like, oh, maybe it'll be the Lions in week five. Like, that's an easy win for the Patriots. And they get off to a hot start, come in, and the Patriots are starting Bailey Zappi. And there was real concern. The Patriots, I think, at that time could have gone to one and four, it might have been. So um, I think the Patriots and their fans are more focused on just what happens here. Division games are always going to be tight. They've been tight the last few years. And even when they were dominating, the Patriots' record outside the AFC East was virtually identical by winning percentage 
as it was inside the division. So it wasn't a cakewalk back then, even if they were in for a long time, one of the softer divisions in football. All right, Andrew, it's draft week. Um, we got to dive into it. So look, I've been banging the table for, I don't know how long for Zay Flowers, mostly just selfishly because we've covered him so much. Um, what do you think they're going to do this week? And do you think receiver is a legitimate chance or, or possibility, I should say, um, or are they going corners slash tackle slash trading down? Yeah, so I don't have any hard reporting on this, but my sense and just kind of looking at their moves recently, how they view themselves and moves in free agency, I think it's a trade back, and I think it's going to be an offensive tackle for me. Like, I think when they look at the receiver group, I say this all the time, they don't see it as just the wideouts or your receivers, your number one, your number two, your number three. They look at it as a pass-catching group as a whole. How good are our tight ends, our running backs? So they see swapping out Johnny Smith for Mike Kosicki, upgrade. Jacoby Myers out for Juju Smith-Schuster, upgrade. Drafting Ty Walton Thornton in the second round last year, not only just a, a second round pick, but a pick they made and traded up to go get. He's a guy they see his position to make a run. Now, a lot of these guys will be entering contract years, including Hunter Henry, who should also bounce back. And when they look at that group as a whole versus, do we really want to start Riley Reef, 34, who supposedly they have a lot of belief in and gave enough guaranteed money to guarantee him a roster spot? I don't know. But you also look at their history of drafting the position whether it's Cole Strange, you know, Isaiah Wynn, Nate Solder, on and on, they're willing to invest that in the position. We've only seen it once with a receiver. And I think it would be Jackson Smith and Jigba from, you know, the little life lean in and around the team for them. But if they trade back and then they trade back again and Zay is still sitting there and he's the top player on your board, you're going to have to commit to it. I just think for them, ideally, you get Gonzalez or Witherspoon fall to you at 14. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but they'll look at the value there, the players where there's a real drop off from or lack of blue chip players to, OK, if we had the same guy at 14, we could probably get a 25. Let's just let's just head on back. You are watching slash listening to the New England football show presented by Mortgage Right. I'm your host, John Serenitas. As always, I'm joined by Kevin Stone and Adam Kirkshen. And tonight we are joined by Andrew Callahan from the Boston Herald. And Andrew, I, I want to stay on the draft there. And, you know, you, you talked about trading back. And of course it's kind of become a, a rite of passage around here where, where you're, you're waiting to see when the other shoe is going to drop on, on the Thursday night of draft weekend. And when are the Patriots going to trade back? Of course they did it last year. And I think they surprised us all when they took Cole Strange guard out of Tennessee, Chattanooga. I, I agree with you from the standpoint that I would not be surprised if they traded back. And quite frankly, I know a lot of Patriot fans don't want to hear this, but it probably is in their best interest because to your point, unless a Witherspoon or a Gonzalez or one of those top 10 guys falls to you at 14, you're better off trading back, let's say, from, from 20 to 26, accumulate those extra draft picks, and then take a guy like an Anton Harrison or a Darnell Wright, take that offensive tackle, as you mentioned. But I think that there was some stuff that was said last Tuesday when we were up there by Matt Grove that I think was very telling. And you touched on one of those things where I think they look at this receiver group and at least for me reading between the lines, I think they look at this receiver group and they believe that there's enough depth there that they don't have to take a guy in the first round that they can take one later. But I also think in many ways it's the Patriots, right? So he was also fawning over Zay flowers and talking about how he's more than just a slot and all this other good stuff. But when you look at their 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 draft history under Belichick, they have not addressed the secondary in the first round, particularly corner. Obviously, they took Merriweather at 24 and 07. They took McCourty at 27 in 2010. Realistically speaking, do you see them 
taking a corner? Because to me, I think that's their number one need. Could you see them at 14 actually talking themselves into taking a corner if one of the guys that's high on their board is sitting there? Yeah, I think in in the rare scenario, because we always talk about trade down, trade down, trade down. They have traded up. That's a thing that's happened in the past with Bill Belichick. And they've hit Chandler Jones, Dante Hightower. I don't have to tell you guys. If there's an instance where, and I pitched this today in an article, thebostonherald.com, four fake trades for the Patriots to go up, you come down, you get a veteran, and then you trade one away. They could get up to number 10 with the Eagles, where I think one of those two players absolutely could fall, especially if we get three or four quarterbacks there in the top nine picks. That's a position that's a premium position, a blue chip player that I think they could go trade up and get. The, that's the only scenario, though, in which I see them landing one of those two guys, A, because they're great, but B, because the Patriots, even in their lulls, you know, drafting receivers or other positions, tight ends, whatever it might be, have always, always hit on mid-round to undrafted free agent corners. And they bank on their development and their system and the way that they play and have thresholds. And to that point, they hosted a guy I, to be honest, had never heard of until last week, Isaiah Bolden, a Jackson State corner who runs in the four threes, is six two, and is projected to be a priority free agent, but has the testing numbers of a first or second round pick. So he looks like someone that if they're investing that amount of time, one of those 30 visits to come to Foxborough and don't have to draft him in the first round, but feel like they could develop him, he fits more of the mold. Uh, but there are a lot of other mid-round guys. Because it's a deep class, I could see them taking two. Andrew, I feel like the draft is always daunting in, in terms of covering it. What's your process like at the start of it? Do you do you, do you look at mock drafts and, and, and go with those names and study film on that? Or do you have your own sort of way of going about it? Yeah, so I, I lean on the experts early in the draft process because, look, I'm exhausted after the season. You know, usually a little bit of burnout, especially after a year like this, extra road games, all the dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera, reporting on that. Uh, but yeah, I'll start with, you know, your Daniel Jeremiah's, your Todd McShay's, you know, Dan Brugler's and kind of work off their top 50. And look, if it's if it's a top five quarterback, I'm not spending a whole lot of time there. Running backs, you know, I felt better about that early in the process. The Patriots wouldn't invest a pick. Now you have reports they're looking into blue chip players and kind of work my way down the list. So the early receivers, I took a look at all those. I like to watch a minimum of two games with my own notes. You have the testing thresholds and the prototypes all in a different spreadsheet for me. And so if guys don't check any of those boxes, I just move on. If I'm going to be surprised, that's fine. But they've got to fit within a historical prototype of the Patriots, which is to some degree funny this season because last year they deviated so far away from those with Tyquan Thornton, even Marcus Jones to a degree, that you wonder if they're going by a new kind of scouting script here. But, you know, it's, it's receivers, offensive tackles for me, tight ends, a lot of guys fit within that prototype and just kind of go down the list. So if I have extra time and, you know, again, someone like um, – let's say, I mean, Paris Johnson Jr., Peter Skaronsky, like I, I looked at early, longer he stays in the top 10, okay, they'd have to move up to get him. I don't, I don't go back there. He seems like a solid, safe prospect, but kind of spend more time. And as you mentioned, John, Anton Harrison, you know, that's my process. Try to get through every position, start offensively to defensively, and then fill in the gaps when, you know, when I have time on a random Monday, Tuesday, whatever. Andrew, Will Levis obviously made some, some pretty loud waves last week. Um, do you think there is any chance in hell that if he drops that they would take him because i don't but it's 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 certainly an interesting conversation yeah sorry i just got a text from uh, a source so i that i was a little distracted say the name again uh will levis the, the will uh levis. No, I, yeah. I don't see it with will i i think that's a play where it's late in the process you know the, the week or two leading up the draft we know is all smokescreen season um and so for them you go okay we're at 14 this kid is projected to possibly fall to us you know, do we at least want to send out a signal, given all the other signals we sent about how we feel about Mac Jones? 
maybe we're interested. Let's bring them in for a visit. So they know what they're doing there. I think it's also for them just doing their due diligence. They talked to Anthony Richardson at the draft, didn't meet with any of the top guys. They're all going to go ahead of them very strong in, in CJ Stroud. But, you know, I, I don't think there's a ton there. Um, but I, I will say as much as I feel like they're going to trade back or take an offensive tackle, this is a year two where I'm more open to any sort of surprise, which drafting Will Levis would, would be one of those surprises than I have been since I started covering the team five, six years ago. Andrew, do you see a situation? I mean, I know Kevin just mentions Will Levis, but do you do you see a scenario where they go outside of their needs and let's say, you know what, you're sitting there at 14, take the best player available? Is there is there any any way that they surprise us and take someone like an Olin Smith out of Georgia or a Brian Brissy out of Clemson? Do you just see them saying, you know what? Yeah, we know we can use a boundary corner. We know we can upgrade a tackle. But this player is too good here for us sitting in our lap. We got to take him and make it official. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it was funny because you talk about throwing out the old playbook last year when they go with Tyquan Thornton, Cole Strange out early. Um, you know, in the years prior, you could almost count on them always drafting a year ahead of time for a need they would have next offseason based on the contract structures, the length. Kyle Duggar came in. Patrick Chung did retire the next offseason due to COVID, but they didn't know that at the time they took Kyle Duggar. Um, going back to kill Harry, you needed a receiver, but Edelman was still there, going to be your number one, go back on and on and on. So now they're drafting a little bit more for need immediately. But if there's a player like, let's just say, B. John Robinson out of Texas, who is you know classified as a running back, but you could talk yourself into saying, we could put him in the slot, we could put him in motion, we could do these two-back sets with him and Stevenson, how do you defend that? Some want a lot of mismatch somewhere and take a player like him because he's just so overwhelmingly talented. But yeah, I mean, anything's on the table. I know they've changed a lot about their models and their processes the last couple of years, which has helped spur some of their success. What those look like in 2023, I don't know. But yeah, if they love a Nolan Smith, you know, guy who's been in a similar defense in Georgia and checks most of the boxes is a little small, but doesn't play like it. Yeah, they could absolutely take a swing at 14, I think. And, and I think that the whole conversation about Bijan Robinson is intriguing because the running back position has changed so much. And obviously that position is no no longer valued like it once was, but he is a special kind of dude. He's the kind of player that provided he doesn't end up suffering a, an injury early in his career, he's a back that could be a two-contract back, which is rare in today's game. But I know a lot of Patriot fans and, and even, even some of our brethren in the media like to poo-poo that idea, but I don't see it happening. But, man, would it be fascinating if a B. John Robinson is sitting there and Belichick gives the rest of the league the double middle finger and says, F you, we're taking him and we're going to find new ways to use him and, 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 and take advantage of his skill set with what we already have. Yeah. I mean, when a guy like Daniel Jeremiah who mocked Bijan to the Patriots, I think three or four weeks ago, you know, does that, that has my attention. I mean, he's obviously a former scout, been with three different franchises. He's plugged in one of the franchises he worked for the Ravens still work from kind of a, an infrastructure that Belichick built with the Browns that they took with them to Baltimore so he knows what he's looking at and what he's hearing. And so I'm not saying that's going to happen based on one little mock draft. But, you know, for the Patriots, it would be a lot of fun. And they need players like him that you keep opposing offensive or defensive coordinators up at night. Is That's a blue chip player. He's a playmaker. He's a problem. They just don't have many of those. But I would pan the pick because I just don't think you can get the rushing value of production, even from a talented guy like that, unless you take care of your offensive line. Like most of rushing production is built on how well is the play block, and how many guys are in the box. And we've seen the Patriots struggle with that, lifting defenses out into two high structures. 
you know, even when they're running the ball. And you look at Ramondre Stevenson, his best quality last year certainly wasn't the run blocking. It was the yards he created. But even then, the rushing attack was just about average. So I think you get a right tackle who plugs that stream of pressure Mac Jones face, which screwed him up dating back all the way to last summer. A road grader like Darnell Wright would make a lot of sense for me either at 14 or back in the 20s. And then you get maybe, if you want to get greedy, a Jameer Gibbs out of Alabama, who's considered a top 40, top 50 pick or another back in the middle rounds. Because I think you've got your number one. A 1B would be great. I just don't think it solves the problems right now that are really hampering the rest of your offense. Um, We touched on this a little bit already, but uh, one thing I think everybody has noticed recently in the last few drafts, maybe more than that, is how much – uh, the Patriots seem to like players from Georgia. And I know part of that is they have great players and, you know, everybody loves great <laughs> players. But how much of it is something else? Is there something else that Belichick likes out of that program uh, that's maybe not, the, I guess, sort of obvious one of them just having good players? Yeah. Well, speaking of Georgia, you want to talk about fun. Like Darnell Washington coming to New England would be a freaking blast. I mean, the guy's the size of LeBron with an extra 20 pounds and he's out there playing tight end. Like who wouldn't want to see that? I think, you know, if Darnell obviously could be late first round or early second round. For Georgia, it's it's similar to the Alabama, right? Because Kirby Smart, their head coach, former defensive coordinator, learned under Nick Saban in Alabama. What they've done is just kind of taken Alabama. And I wouldn't say it's 2.0, but like 1.8 and the way that they recruit and develop and they're landing all of these players that used to just have a one-way ticket to Tuscaloosa will come back three, four years and go to the NFL. So they're getting better high school prospects. They're putting them in a pro style system offensively and defensively, and they just have high thresholds for those, those recruits. I mean, these are stepping in as like grown ass men who have four five speed or four, four speed sometimes. And so when you develop those players, like that's when you get so many first and second round picks as you've seen. So whether it's a competition in the SEC, the coaching they're getting, which is similar to Alabama, or just the raw physical traits that these guys have, I mean, there's not a whole lot not to like about Georgia. The only knock being possibly um, the same ones you had at Bama. These guys come in and they have a lot of miles on them just from the grueling physical practices against teammates who fit the same bill, big, strong, fast, and just kind of wear you down. Andrew, last week when we were at Gillette, uh, Matt Groh, I believe the comment was, you know, you can never be too fast. Um, I might not have it exactly right, but um, speed is clearly something they're now thinking of. Do you think he is now, and I want to make sure I put this the right way, no matter what they do, if they go offense, does that indicate more so, you know, his pick or Bill's pick? And I know Mike Giardi had kind of brought this up um, a week or two ago, just in terms of how things go right now. Can we kind of glean from who they pick, who is making the pick, if that makes sense? I don't think so, just because Macro is on the record saying Bill's the GM. Like, he's the boss. He makes the final call. I know Bill has a tremendous amount of faith and respect for Matt, who basically was raised in his system, dating back to when Matt was the son of Al Groh, working on the Patriots staff in the mid-90s, where Belichick obviously was, and Parcells and the whole crew. And then he comes to New England and I wrote a long profile of Matt last year, just digging into his background, who he is, where he's worked for, what is he like, what is he good at? And the respect from Belichick, I mean, it goes back all the way 10 years when, you know, the kid is working there after from a long trip as a West Coast scout. And you have that whole coast down all the way out to like Colorado, I think it is, covering the whole Pac-12, among other conferences. He comes back from like 16-hour workdays, 8-10-hour flight, right back in the office. And John Robinson, who's the director of college scouting at the time, says, go home, Matt, like get out of here. And so when Belichick says he's as good as anyone that we've had, it's the work, it's the evaluations, 
He's incredibly smart, went to Princeton, then went to University of Virginia Law School. So I think there's probably a point at which Matt could sway Belichick, but his job right now, in addition to being concise and clear and definitive about where he stands on these players, is to present all information to Belichick, who's going to make a call. But I know Matt has, has a, a big uh, standing with Bill, as does Elliot uh, Wolf, who's basically handled a lot of the pros stuff since they've started really split the GM role under Belichick. Andrew, I, I want to ask you, are there guys in this draft that you would say are your favorite type, are, are your favorites, guys that if you were a scout for the Patriots, you would bang the proverbial table for them this week? So so just give me a, a quick list of guys, three or four guys that are guys that you really like that, and I don't want you to sound like a fan here, but that you think the team should draft or you would like to see the team draft. Yeah, I, it's funny. I just did this podcast last week with uh, Alex Barth, 98.5 Sports Hub, who goes so far into the draft. I think he's going to drown in 40 times and three cones sometimes. But uh, we did our draft crushes. For me, what I didn't mention was Emmanuel Forbes, corner out of Mississippi State, who's gone up from projected day two pick, borderline second, third round when I was at the combine talking to him, to now he's in the late first round with some of these mocks. Um, you know, he's got four career pick sixes. Had three last year at Mississippi State. They didn't play a ton of man coverage, but he's so instinctive. Their ball skills is probably the number one trait the Patriots look for in their corners once you get past all the physical thresholds and the size and the timing and everything. I like Darnell Wright a lot out of Tennessee. I mean, he's a right tackle, dominated his top competition. Um, he's a guy who really has developed there, also played some guard, played the left side. When you look beyond that, um, I mean, a couple of the tight ends I really like, super deep class. I think they should target one on day two, and if they do, Luke Musgrave is worth a gamble to me at Oregon State. Only played two games last year. Blew people away at the Senior Bowl. He's got the best measurables of this class. He's certainly not going to be Gronk, but I think there's a history here. Okay, we'll roll the dice in a guy who tests really well, dominates his competition when he has played, has an injury risk. But if he's healthy, he's probably ahead of Michael Mayer, who's like the epitome of your, you know, solid, safe tight end, like, you know, the girl that you go out with that everyone likes, but no one's kind of wowed by when you bring her home. Like, that's Michael Mayer. I want Luke Musgrave. I want the nine walking through the door going, okay, when she's around, we're having an awesome time. So those guys, if they ended up with the Patriots, I'm holding up a 10 for my rating of that that pick, uh, which means they're probably all off the board now. But, you know, any of those names, late day one, day two, I think would be big wins. It seems to me that this is a pretty critical draft for the organization in terms of getting out of the middle of the pack. I mean, they're squarely in the middle of the pack. Do you get that sort of sense of urgency from them? Yeah, I, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the hard parts about projecting what the Patriots are going to do in this draft is that from the conversations that I've had, they're much higher in themselves than the consensus is outside. And I don't say that just talking to you guys or talking to the people on the beat or fans of my mentions. I say that as in Vegas has their over-under win total at seven and a half. And they feel like last year, had Bill O'Brien been on board, they were at least at least a 10-win team. So as they look at themselves and say, okay, we've improved our pass-catching talent. We brought everyone back on defense. McCourty retired, but it hasn't been a surprise because he's been talking about us since we were at the Super Bowl last. You know, we'll be okay. They're going to count on coaching, raising the floor of this team. I don't entirely agree with that, but I think beyond that, you know, their urgency. Yeah. I mean, Bill C is warm. He's got a 25 and 26 record the last three years, and he's the greatest coach of all time. He's also someone who's, you know, nuked last season with his decisions to put Joe Judge, Matt Patricia in the roles that they were in. And we all watched it. We all anticipated it and it happened anyway. You know, so if they go eight, nine again, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think Bill's fire or anything like that, but no one in that building wants to experience eight and nine, even if it's more 
you know, it's less dysfunctional this time around. I think there's an urgency. It just, it'll take a different form and it might, you know, take a couple more losses in, in November and December for them to feel like what I think fans do right now, because there's really, really strong belief in that building. They're about to bounce back. Along those same lines, with everything that's going on with Mac Jones this, you know, this offseason, um, one, very simply, is he their starting quarterback this year? And two, if not, um, A, are you a Bailey Zappy, Zappy guy? Um, or do you think that, you know, there is an outside chance someone not on the roster right now is playing quarterback this year? I do think Mac Jones is the week one starter. It goes back to the old uh, Chris Rock line, which I personally do not agree with, but I find amusing and truthful is that you're only as faithful as your options. And I look at Bill Belichick when he picked up the phone and asked around the league and says, hey, do you want Mac Jones? And the answer is like these day three picks. Well, he's going to stick with the guy who at least showed him I could be, you know, somewhere between the 12th or 15th best quarterback in the league as a rookie. So I love being a part of the Zappy Fever. I think it's fun. I think it was a bright spot last year and good for the kid. It was a fourth round pick and everyone thought he'd be sixth, seventh round, maybe undrafted. I do not think he's a better player than Mac Jones. I think it's hard to point to one or two things that he does better. And you look at those games against probably the worst defenses they saw all year, you know, at least in the moment they did. Cleveland got a lot better and tightened up their tackling. But I think Mac Jones is a starter. I think there is a chance he's not the starter here in 2024. But when you think about all the things that can happen in that amount of time, I mean, this year, this time last year, Mac Jones making year two leap, like we had already checked that box. It was baked into the expectation. It had already happened. There was no doubt in our mind that Mac Jones was going to have better completion percentage, more yards, more touchdowns. Lo and behold, he goes very, very far back. And so what does the next year look like? I don't know. But for now, who else are they going to take? Who are they going to trade for? Who are they going to sign? Not anyone better than Mac Jones, at least right now. Andrew, you and, and Karen Garigian wrote a fascinating piece on the inner workings of the organization and and some of the dysfunction from last year. And and it if and I doubt that no one read it in this market, but if there is someone out there that hasn't read that piece, you do yourself a favor and read it because it's a fascinating read. Again, it's well done by you guys. But when you guys were writing that piece and collaborating on it, was there anything in that process where you thought to yourself, wow, I, I didn't see this or I, I didn't think it was as bad. I mean, did anything that you guys uncovered surprise you or was it kind of what you expected and kind of what we saw from the outside looking in? Yeah, no, there were a lot of surprises and some of them were included in that story where I think, you know, again, where we talk about expectations and baking in, you know, to what we think is going to happen next. I mean, the starting point with Bill Belichick, again, is his greatest coach of all time. It means he's exceptionally smart and hardworking and experienced no one's seen more football than him. No one's probably known more football than him. But that doesn't mean you don't have your blind spots or your weaknesses or don't make mistakes. And obviously, Matt Patricia and Joe Judge were put in positions that they couldn't they couldn't succeed. And they were stuck there anyway. Joe Judge got phased out in the middle of the season, which was partly a surprise. And the only sign of an admission for Belichick of like, OK, this isn't really working out. But when you hear about the smaller decisions, which we couldn't you know, some instances couldn't confirm with other people, right? Like we're going to report something, it's going to be ironclad, no doubt, no nothing. And as you've seen, there's been no objection from the Patriots side, no denial, no anything. There were things or decisions or the process, even of game planning, where you have Belichick and Patricia so involved after the fact, certain work had been put in by other coaches or other staff members or other people around the team. And even the players knew that like, this message in the meeting is not what we're getting in practice. And you just think, how could this be possible? This is Bill's 23rd year as a head coach. But again, it was just mistakes in judgment. 
in, in beliefs in certain people in certain spots and just kind of an underlying arrogance, which you win eight Super Bowls, you earn the right, you know, just some hubris, no doubt about it. Uh, it was just, though, the day to day kind of what are we doing here and how early players knew that and could sense something was wrong. And it just kept getting worse. That just it just shocks you because, again, the starting point is Bill's a smart guy. He'll figure it out. And instead, as it was said in the piece by a source that, like, he screwed us. Yeah, it's interesting. There's so much in that article about the offense and, and, you know, really the fans are really fixated on the offense right now. And how much do you think Bill O'Brien is a cure-all for this? And how much of it is, well, hey, it necessarily changed that much? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Bill O'Brien's not going to, you know, stop any kick returns from going back to the house. That, that's for certain. They got to clean things cleaned up on special teams. which worse than the league last year. But I think what they'll do is they'll just have a collection of plays that complement each other. Like, it'll be a real system. There's no this hodgepodge of stuff that we just saw the Rams win the Super Bowl. And we have a lot of respect for McVay. So let's just do a bunch of that. And let's mesh it in with these play action throws that, well, we don't want to block them that way because we're not going to have Mac boot the opposite of this zone action. So we can't really run those. Like, the runs are going to look like the passes. The passes initially sometimes are going to look like the runs um, you know, when you're when you're combining that for a play action packer, which is just so foundational. Again, things Belichick has said, you want to marry the pass with the run. They just didn't do that. So I think they'll get out of their own way a lot. Um, and especially when you look at areas like penalties, like I don't know how many pre-snap penalties they had last year, but I'm almost positive it was a high for the Belichick era. That goes out the window. Okay. You have someone who's experienced in Bill O'Brien coaching receivers, coaching quarterbacks, those areas should get better. You have new assistants in here, Adrian Clamp for Matt Patricia. Like Everything about this should be better. I think Bill O'Brien, like Matt Patricia, got too much flack last year. Bill O'Brien will probably get too much credit when things are going well. But there's enough clay here to mold a top 12 offense, maybe. Certainly an above average offense to get this going. And I think we'll see more often than not glimpses of that this season. Andrew, last one from me. Um, sticking with Bill O'Brien as well. Do you think in minicamp or, you know, maybe not minicamp, but training camp, We'll be able to tell very early on whether it is different or not. And I don't mean, you know, success offensively, but just the overall operation, you know, the play calling, getting plays in, getting guys in and out of the huddle. Is that going to be noticeable early on, you think? I think what's going to be most notable is Bill O'Brien screaming his freaking head off. And that will be a big change from when he came last year as he tries to set the tone and establish who he is. Because let's remember, like, not only just he was nicknamed Teapot when he was here, courtesy of Tom Brady and Brian Hoyer, because he would just blow his top and get too angry. This is a guy who left, was a head coach in college, but the head coach in the NFL, then an offensive coordinator in college, and is now back. Like, he has much more accomplished experience and got to bring in his own coaches, which no one has ever done in New England, because all of coordinator hires are promotions from within. And he's technically within the family, but he's got some sweat. He's got some power here, and I think he's going to flex that now. I don't think we'll see things schematically aside from, you know, their outside zone usage is going to turn way down uh, and probably smartly so. But beyond that, I don't think we'll be able to know yet. You only know when the pads come on. And that's really, Kevin, I think you guys would agree with this. We knew things were screwed up. It was like the second week, third week of training camp. They can't run block anything. And Mac Jones is skittish in the pocket. We didn't get pads in the spring, so we really won't know. That would put us, what, around the first preseason game, first, second preseason game? Yeah, and you bring up a great point, Andrew. It was it was abundantly obvious at camp last year that from an operational standpoint, that they, they were they were putting a band-aid over a gunshot wound. It just wasn't working. And and I think 
we were sitting there watching it and we saw it. And and obviously you have to think the players saw it, the whole thing with Kendrick Bourne and everything else. So to, to your point and going all the way back to the piece you and Karen wrote, I mean, this thing was was destined to fail from the beginning. Uh, before we go here, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you as a UConn alum, just some thoughts on your Huskies winning their fifth national championship in basketball since 1999. Oh, I'd love to thank you guys. Yeah, it's uh, not only just UConn alum, Stores Native, which there aren't many of us, but we do wow. live there. We go to high school there, and then some of us stick around and go to college there. Very proud. Um, I'm a very anxious fan, so I didn't believe it was going to happen until the confetti fell. As talented as they were, it just felt like something was missing. It'll go part of the Big East tournament, but you know, talent wins out. And if there was a year where you had so many upsets throughout college basketball, including UConn, which went from the second-ranked team in the country in January to basically out of the poll by the end of the month, like it should be a four seed. It should be someone that, granted, maybe a lot of experts saw coming, but I didn't believe in. It came out from one of the hardest quadrants in the bracket, so it was a ton of fun. Uh, I got to see some old friends and celebrate the win. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a smile on my face basically until next October, November, when I watch them again and start worrying again. So it's going to be a, a good summer at least. And, and, a, and a store is native, which is awesome. You know, like you said, it's that adds to it. And, of course, Adam and I were down there on Saturday for the spring showcase. Uh, Huskies look good coming off a 6-6 six and six season. Coach Mora Excellent. does not want to add that seventh loss he told us to their record it was six and six then they went to a bowl game he says but you know what what impressed me and adam was not only the, the football team and we both think based on their schedule and and coming off of last season that this is a team that is in position to win seven or eight games and play in a higher profile bowl game but the other thing that's so impressive right now about uconn athletics andrew is they're good at everything i mean your basketball team just won a national title on the men's side the women's program, regardless of what happened, is still the standard in the sport. Your football team goes to a bowl game. Baseball made a run last year in, in the tournament. Hockey They're has top had 10 right now. Yeah. Right, them and BC, 10-11, I think it is. Yeah. And, and you look at the hockey team, of course, they're getting the new Toscano Ice Forum. I mean, it is it is a good time to be around UConn Athletics. It's one of the best athletic programs in the country. We're not just saying that because we cover them. I think the proof's in the pudding. Yeah, and you're saying it because I'm on, which I really appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. We want to get you back on again, so we got to, you know. I'm going to rewatch the show just for that 15-minute clip of you talking like that. But, uh, well, first of all, I have a question for you guys. How do they look in the trenches really quickly? Because I read your, your guys' stuff. You guys are so thorough and detailed and cover from the high school level to the colleges, the small stuff. I think your coverage shows that care and that detail you don't see everywhere, especially in New England with the football so I, I respect it, and I look forward to reading more. But what what specifically did you see up front, offense and defense uh, over the weekend? I, I we went down there before too, and that was one of the things we remarked the most was their. I mean, their offensive line is deep. They've got more than five guys who can play, and their their front seven on defense legit. Like I think, you know, anytime you're a football team, I don't care what level, if you can run the ball and stop the run, you're in for a good season. I think that's what they have. Yeah, I, I love yeah, it. Yeah, they returned four or five stars along the offensive line. Christian Haynes, to me, is a first-round talent at guard. I, I would not be surprised. He's he's definitely a day-two kid. But I think he is going to be in the same conversation as Travis Jones was last year, a guy that a lot of people aren't going to pay attention to early, but a guy who is coming off an All-American season. I think he repeats that. They've been repping him at center, too, which gives him even more versatility. But I think he's a potential first-round talent. But, but then to Adam's point, you look at him on the defensive line, you have Eric Watts, who's 6'6 and change at defensive end. 
he's poised for a monster year. Sequoia McDuffie inside, Delmont Gordine. I mean, they, they're they legit, and I think that's why I'm high on them this year. UNH was my team that I hitched my wagons to last year. Ricky Santos and company made me look good winning a share of the CAA and making the playoffs. But I think this UConn team, with that schedule, with their strength being up front in that running game, they got five backs that can all impact the game. If they could figure it out at quarterback, again, Adam and I talked about this on the way home the other day. I don't see why this team doesn't win seven or eight games. I really don't. I think the schedule sets up for them to do that. So they got to figure it out at receiver. They lost a couple of guys in the portal and a couple of big guys. Keelan Marion is a loss, but I do think you're going to hear some – you're going to hear some people commit this week. I think they, they're going to have two or three receivers come in. So uh, I think, you know, like I said, times are great at UConn. It's it's great for New England. And the facilities down there, by the way, are as good as there is in the region. I mean, they're on par with any of the other D1 programs. And, again, a lot of that is due to having a nationally ranked and high-profile basketball program. But they're, they're cooking an awesome. Those. Andrew, real quick before we let you go, just some way early predictions on – the 2023 season for the Patriots. If you had to look into your Callahan's crystal ball, what do you see? I'm looking at nine and eight. I think uh, the Patriots having the most difficult strength to schedule in the entire league and the opponents that are coming to Foxborough in addition to the ones they have to go on the road, including to Germany, is going to be really difficult to overcome. And that's not just opponent strength to schedule based on last year's records. It's Vegas' projected win totals, which we should all be going by at this point because they're the most accurate, most predictive measure that we have. And it's just tough. I mean, we started talking about Aaron Rodgers. The Jets now twice a year are going to be difficult. The Eagles come into town. They're going to see the Chiefs. So I think it's they're an appreciably better team, but we only see a one-win improvement, which right now, speaking of Vegas, is a win and a half better than, than people are expecting them to be. So um, I think it's another bridge year, but it's a more much, much more positive functional one than we had last season. Well, hopefully it's enough of a bridge year that it can get them into the playoffs. I mean, that'll mean more work for us, but hey. This isn't work. We love it, right? Well, Andrew, I want to say thanks for taking the time, brother. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, for us as as fans of your work and, you know, as as, as colleagues when we're up there at the Patriots, it's, uh, it means a lot to us to have you come on, and uh, we'd love to do it again soon. Definitely. My treat, guys. Love your work. Keep it up. Thanks, Back brother. Ahead. Appreciate it. Thanks Back at you, man. That is Andrew Callahan from the Boston Herald. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of the New England Football Show. For Andrew Callahan, Kevin Stone, Adam Kirchin, I'm John Serenitas. We'll talk to you next week. Peace. Whoa. See ya. See ya.